are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature and other art forms can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can find my work on my website, jenniferanfrey.com, and you can also follow me on social media, on Twitter at Jen Frey or on Instagram at Professoressa Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Pod. In this episode, titled Scruton's Wagner on Sex, Death, and Redemption, I speak with philosopher Fiona Ellis of Roehampton University about the late Sir Roger Scruton's book, Death, Devoted Heart, Sex, and the Sacred in Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am really happy to be joined this afternoon by Professor Fiona Ellis. So she's a professor of philosophy at Roehampton University, and she's joining me this afternoon from London. Uh, Hi, Fiona. Hi, Jen. So glad to have you. I just wanted to start off by asking you, so you have this new Templeton project Uh, Can you tell us about that? What is your project? What are you doing? How can we learn more about it? So um, it's funded by the Templeton Religion Trust, and I'm co-directing it with um, Claire Carlyle from KCL London, King's College London. And the title of the project is The Quest for God Towards a Theology of Desire, or the long title Towards an Empirically Grounded and Philosophically Grounded Theology of Desire. And really what we're trying to do is to get a bit clearer about the notion of desire, make sense of the idea that desire could have a religious orientation, and make sense ultimately of the idea that our most basic desires could involve a desire for God. So we're working from within a theistic framework, but we're also tuned to the kind of atheist who finds this kind of problem, this kind of framework really problematic. So we're wanting to talk from those two different angles and to say things that um, could be appreciated by somebody who's not happy with that kind of theistic framework. And I think that's why figures like Wagner, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Scruton are really important figures for us, or certainly for me, at least in the thinking that I've been doing in this context. So trying to be clear about the nature of desire, trying to make sense of the idea that it's not absurd to suppose that desire could be understood as a desire for God, and trying to spell out the implications of that way of thinking, albeit in a manner which could involve communicating with the kind of atheist who finds a lot of these ideas really problematic. So we're we're concerned with dialogue um, with people who are not naturally attuned to this way of thinking, dialogue as opposed to confrontation and debate. We want to explore the possibility of thinking 
along these lines, explore the possibility of thinking about desire in theistic terms and see how far we can go with that way of thinking, but also be prepared to acknowledge some of the obstacles along the way. And of course, there are many. Excellent. So for our listeners who are interested in this as well, and they want to follow your project, do you have like a blog or a website or anything like that? So we have a website and I can't remember the exact address of it, but if you put Quest for God in the Google engine, it should come up. We have a website yeah, and it tells us all about the team and our activities and the seminars we've been doing and our capstone conference, which will be on Saturday, June the 13th at the University of Roehampton. Be there or be square. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. So we, so this episode today, we're going to be talking about a book by Sir Roger Scruton, which is titled Death Devoted Heart, Sex and the Sacred and Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. But before we get into this really wonderful um, and thought-provoking book, I just wanted to invite um, invite you to tell us a little bit about who Sir Roger Scruton was and kind of what your relationship with him was and what you think his enduring legacy is for philosophy. So Roger was my first philosophy teacher and he was so important to me because he was the kind of philosopher who lived his philosophy And I think he would have agreed with his great friend, Iris Murdoch, that the problems of philosophy are the problems of my life. And that's certainly a way of thinking about philosophy that I'm wholly committed to. And perhaps I'm wholly committed to that way of thinking because it was drummed into me by him at an early stage of my career as an undergraduate. So he lives he lived his philosophy it was something really important to him and i think that he can be understood as being part of a trend of more a more humane way of doing philosophy this more humane way of doing philosophy which involves being opposed to scientism and a preparedness to acknowledge that human meaning is really important and that we can legitimately philosophize about things like love, desire, music, the thing in itself, God, all of the things which, according to a certain way of approaching our subject, are forbidden to us. And I think that this more humane way of doing philosophy, which has been taken on board by a lot of philosophers and philosophers of religion is a much more healthy outlook and it has a lot of contact I suppose with more continental ways of doing philosophy and there are a lot of analytic philosophers who operate in this way now. I mean having said all of that I'm quite skeptical about the idea that there's a really clear-cut distinction between analytic and continental. No it's completely bogus I mean because well, for starters, Iris Murdoch is mm. an analytic philosopher, if anyone is. I mean, if yeah, you look absolutely. at her time and training, but mm. I doubt that anyone would put forward Iris Murdoch as like a quintessential example of philosophy in the analytic mode. I think analytic philosophy, um, at least for the past 25 years, has mm. been mostly a sociological category. Mm. So in that sense, I'm an analytic philosopher and you are an analytic mm. philosopher insofar as you can look at the institutions that we were trained in and our teachers. It's sort of like, where was your training? 
what set of problems were you responding to? I don't know, like maybe it's some condition on being an analytic philosopher that like you've read some Frege and some Russell. <laughs> and we like analyzing concepts, but analyzing concepts can be something really significant from a metaphysical point of view of the concepts in question of things like God, desire, love and humanity, what it means to be human, what it means to do philosophy. So, you know, we do all of those things in the way that a lot of continental philosophers do as well. Right, exactly. So I didn't know that Scruton and Murdoch were friends. Um, That's fascinating. I love that. That's right. She used to go and stay with him, um, with her husband, John Bailey, and they would swim in a little pond at the top of his farm in really filthy water. Well, she would, not the others. <laughs> That's something I'm very sympathetic towards too, being a wild swimmer myself. But she was a wild swimmer before wild swimming became fashionable. What's wild swimming? So wild swimming is where you are when you're in the water. <laughs> it's wait, supposed wait. to be the opposite of the kind of swimming that you do when you're in a chlorinated pool with a roof over your head. <laughs> I see. I see. <laughs> So like if I'm swimming in the ocean, I'm a wild swimmer. That's right. Yeah, that's a pretty wild form of swimming. There you go. Well, it's interesting that she and Scruton were friends because I actually see a lot of resonances in their work. Mm. um, But I didn't realize it was a personal connection. Um, Mm. Obviously, I I love Iris Murdoch. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows that I love Murdoch. I was thinking earlier um, that one of, one of the really important things that Murdoch says is that carnal love teaches us that what we want, what we really want, is something beyond. And it's quite quite difficult to be clear about what she means by that. But that kind of thought that carnal love or erotic love is somehow taking us beyond however that's to be understood that's where conceptual analysis becomes really important I think it's that kind of idea that really obsessed Roger the idea that we could perhaps somehow pierce the veil of appearances and get to the thing in itself and I think that that was why erotic love and music were so important to him and of course philosophy of religion because he was obsessed with that thought again can we really get to god is there something preventing that move if so what's the alternative what are the implications for how we think about salvation etc so i think murdoch's onto that line of thought she's onto the idea that erotic love has huge religious significance and he shares that vision in the way that I think Wagner did, jumping ahead a bit to the figures that we're going to be talking a bit more about. Well, just to, I, I just, I have so many questions here, but I'll limit myself to one. So Murdoch, it was a, you know, she's an atheist, but she's, she was like an atheist who was extremely sensitive to the religious character of the human. And so when you read Murdoch, um, she's very concerned to preserve a space for the transcendent, for the mysterious, for the sacred, uh, for the mystical. I'm a believer, so I'm very interested in this secular search for the sacred, which also is currently a project being carried out by Cora Diamond, who I think is an excellent philosopher, a very influenced by Wittgenstein and, and Murdoch and Anscombe. So I'm interested in this sense of kind of like secular religion or a secular sense of sacred. And I I think that it's very clear 
that this is one of the principal interests that Scruton has in in Wagner, right? So Wagner also was this um, artist who is is not a believer, but is very concerned that we maintain a sense of what is sacred or set apart. So maybe I'll just invite you now to say something about Wagner. Like why should we, why should philosophers or theologians or just humanists, broadly speaking, why should they be into Wagner? I mean, I could I just step back a moment and respond to something that you said about Murdoch, which sure. is um, that she's an atheist. And I think one of the issues here that interests me about this whole debate is that the distinctions and limits between the concepts that we're operating with are really unclear. So if she's an atheist, she's somebody who believes in the transcendent, you know, this is that they're the words that she uses, and she believes in goodness, and she's a Platonist. And I guess then I would want to ask, well, in what sense is she not a theist, given that she characterizes the relevant terms and concepts that she's operating with in pretty much theistic theistically loaded terms. You know, she'll talk about the transcendent. She talks about grace. She talks about the sense in which we are moving in the direction of the transcendent um, via our capacity to desire and to know. So she takes all of that from Plato. And you might say, ultimately, the big difference is that um, her goodness cannot be viewed in personal terms. But then I just wonder what it really means to describe the transcendent in personal terms, what it means to deny those terms, and whether a certain kind of theist wouldn't go along with what she's saying when she says perhaps we shouldn't be describing the transcendent in personal or personalist terms. I think it's really unclear. I mean, I guess, you know, I once went to a lecture given by a theist um, and a Jesuit, and he was calling into question the idea that we should be thinking about God in personal terms and saying, look, that's picture thinking. We have to move beyond that way of thinking about God if we're to get a true vision. So it all gets a bit muddled up. And But I, I really would question whether Murdoch's an atheist. If she's an atheist, maybe I'm an atheist too. And yeah, there's a question about where Scruton would stand with respect to the distinctions that I've just made. So I, I don't quite, I'm not absolutely clear about what it means to describe oneself as a theist rather than an atheist. Right. Once, so, once, once you make clear that the atheist in question is committed to the transcendent in the way that Murdoch is. Right. I guess maybe I have like a low church conception of transcendence. So like maybe we could think like, uh, high church transcendence is like there's a completely transcendent God who stands outside of a created mm. order, etc. But I mean, the sort of vision of God that you find in classical theism, um, she certainly doesn't seem to be a theist in that sense. But then I, I was just, I guess, in a flat-footed way, just mm. taking her at her word. I mean, when she writes about religion, she just says things like, well, you know, educated people can't believe in this anymore. She does say, though, that we require a central concept in moral philosophy that um, has nearly everything in common with God as 
traditionally understood. I would love to press you on this, but I sort of don't want Murdoch to no, no, overshadow no. <laughs> Scruton. So the, the, the other thing I wanted to say about Scruton, this is gradually leading into Wagner, is that if I if I was to describe what he was trying to do, there's a sense in which he's trying to put in motion what I would call a total philosophy. And I mean, I think this is quite an important way of describing it. It reminds me of two other things. One is the kind of total theology, which has been endorsed quite recently by the theologian Sarah Coakley. And when she talks about total theology, it's kind of a theology which would be truly interdisciplinary and would involve theology, philosophy, science, psychotherapy, art, all of these different disciplines in dialogue with each other. And I think Scruton wants to do something analogous to that in his philosophy. So he wants a philosophy which will dialogue with music, art more generally, um, science, theology. And this interdisciplinary way of approaching our subject is something, well, I'm sure you're very sympathetic to this way of approaching things. And he is, and I think this is his interest in music, one of the reasons he's interested in music. And this is why why I suppose somebody like Wagner is so important to him, given that Wagner himself was trying to do something with music that would involve bringing together different art forms and philosophy, maybe not theology, but maybe theology in the way that I'm trying to understand it. And You know, Wagner himself talks about a total work of art, and he's trying to do this by combining um, music and drama in opera. And it's almost as if Scruton is looking for a total work of something in his approach to life in the most expansive sense. So, you know, he's doing philosophy, he's composing music, he's thinking about God, doing theology. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the sense in which he's a real humanist. Yeah, absolutely. And try and trying in, in all of these different ways to somehow get to the thing in itself, if that's not a really absurd way of describing the relevant activity, but trying right. to pierce the veil of appearances in the way that I think Wagner's trying to do at one level, perhaps helped along by Schopenhauer and Schopenhauer's belief that somehow music can take us to places where nothing else can, including philosophy and theology. Right. So let's kind of get into Wagner. So the Scruton's book is about one of Wagner's operas, Tristan and Isolde. What is Wagner trying to say in this opera? Like what sort of themes is he trying to present to us and what sort of philosophical traditions are informing him? So, I mean, there are two little quotations that help to capture what he took himself to be doing. Um, One is, and yeah, this was in a a letter to Liszt, I, I think. He says, never in my life, having enjoyed true happiness of love, I shall erect a memorial to this loveliest of all dreams. And then he goes on to say, with a black flag that waves at the end, I shall cover myself over to die. 
So there is that kind of idea that he's presenting this paradigm or ideal of love that he's never fully enjoyed in real life, never in my life having enjoyed true happiness of love. And then we've got another little quotation where he talk, where he's wanting to sum up what's going on in Tristan. He talks about a tale of endless yearning, longing, unquenchable, unquenchable desire, where the only redemption to be found is a redemption in death, where we have this connection between love and death and the implication that the only way of finding true satisfaction in love is by dying. Right. And I think there's an influence there from Schopenhauer, who has this idea that provided that we're living the life of desire, we're never going to find true happiness. And our only hope is to somehow die to our desiring self. The only hope is to move, move beyond a desiring mode of existence. Only then will we find true happiness. And of course, somebody like Nietzsche finds that idea morally repugnant. The idea that, from Nietzsche's point of view, what is one of the greatest things about human life, that we are desiring beings, you know, full of life in this respect, he finds utterly repulsive the vision that Schopenhauer seems to be wanting to advance, which is that we need to transcend desire and only by transcending desire can we be truly happy yeah it almost sounds sort of buddhist right yeah which it is for somebody like schopenhauer yeah because he's very much influenced by buddhism and hinduism this idea so, that... so is he having a vision of happiness where it's like sort of like a state of nirvana right where you don't really you're you're no longer oppressed by your desires well, that's right. And I think then the question arises of how this state of non-desire or no thing is to be understood. And the typical atheist interpreter um, will say, look, this is a nihilistic vision. Um, the picture that is being endorsed here is moving us in a, in a direction of blank nothingness. The idea is that it's painful to exist as a human being. Human beings are desiring beings. Desiring involves great suffering. Our only hope is to die. And, you know, that seems to be quite problematic. But the interesting thing is that if you read Schopenhauer carefully, particularly the closing words of the world as will in representation, he's not ruling out the possibility of there being another mode of existence beyond desire-driven or will-driven suffering involving human existence, where it's almost as if he's moving the direction of negative theology, where instead of talking about blank nothingness, is prepared to allow that there is another mode or dimension of existence um, that we can only, that it's really inconceivable to us in our human state, but he's not ruling out the possibility that there could be something more. So not the blank nothingness assumed by the typical interpreter of Schopenhauer who thinks that he's putting forward a nihilistic vision. He's rather looking in the direction of a conception of nothingness that takes us beyond human existence, but not into blank nothingness or nihilism 
as is quite often assumed when people read those words. So, yeah, well, so may, maybe he's moving in the direction of mysticism rather than nihilism. Hmm. Well, it seems, I mean, so there seems like a really big difference be thinking of death as just the end of suffering. Mm. That mm. I can understand. Yes. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, if you're suffering a lot, if you're suffering, you know, in the throes of a passion that you can't realize or maintain, um, okay, death is at least stopping that. But Wagner's idea that death is a redemption I find a little bit harder to wrap my mind around. So I kind of want you to explain Scruton's Wagner to us. But, you know, it seems like at a most general level, Scruton's Wagner thinks that the love between Tristan and Isolde is intrinsically oriented towards death. And that that's sort of its essence, that there's something heroic about it, um, that there's something sacrificial and redemptive about this love, but that's somehow tied to its being intrinsically ordered to death. Can you help make sense of this for us? So, um, I think one problem here is that, well, there is a question of how we're to understand the religious significance of Eros. And I think that it's quite difficult to make sense of the idea that it could have a religious significance if we accept certain fairly prevalent assumptions about what kind of love this is. So, for example, the theologian Anders Negren claimed that Eros is a human all too human love, it's selfish and grasping, it's all about wanting to possess things and get things for oneself, and it's to be distinguished from the love of God. Now, a lot of theologians, like, for example, Sarah Coakley, who I mentioned earlier, want to question that way of thinking about the relation between Eros and Agape, and allow that Eros can itself have a religious significance, you know, they want to allow in the way that the Neoplatonists allowed that eros or God's love itself can have an irreducibly erotic dimension. Now, if you think that erotic love, love can have a religious significance on that ground, then it's going to alter how you think about the relation between erotic love and redemption, for example. So I'm just putting that thought out in the context of trying to be a bit clearer about what the religious significance of erotic love could be in general before we come to think about Wagner. Now, you have Scruton, who I think buys into this way of thinking about the religious significance of eros, but he's also half committed, half committed to the idea that being human all too human, there's a sense in which we're sealed off from God by virtue of our natural human being. Now, I don't think he's he says this consistently. I think that there's an alternative picture in Scruton, which allows that we are somehow open to the transcendent or open to God. But there's an ambivalence in his position. Now, as far as Wagner's concerned and Scruton's Wagner is concerned, um, Wagner, I think, 
buys into a mystical way of thinking about eros at one level. And if you think that erotic love has a kind of mystical significance, then you can just about make sense of the idea that the two lovers may well be looking in the direction of a kind of union that they cannot have in this world and that is realized in some other form of existence or dimension of existence, perhaps. But Scruton's Wagner sees things in a rather different way. And I think here we have an ambivalence in Scruton himself. On the one hand, he's a theist and wants to be able to make sense of the idea that erotic love has religious significance. On the other hand, he is prone to a more atheistic way of thinking and takes very seriously the idea that the transcendent is not accessible to us at any level. And thinking in those terms, it's almost as if he's forced back into the question of how we might think about the religious significance of Eros. And that becomes the question of whether Eros, understood as a purely human form of loving, could be sufficient to redeem us in the absence of God. What I'm suggesting so far is that um, Maybe Eros has religious significance. I'm really sympathetic to that idea. There are ways of thinking in theology which make it an impossible idea. And I think that we need to go beyond those. So I'm happy with the idea that erotic love has religious significance. There is then the question of how that religious significance is to be understood. And we can't rule out the possibility that there are I suppose, modes of erotic desire that need to be purified and are not sufficiently religious, whatever that's going to mean exactly, and that we can be turned away from the good and turned away from God by virtue of being human. Okay. Well, so is one way to characterize its religious significance Mm -hmm. that there is something about it that is sacred and that its sacral character is somehow related to its redemptive potential. You know, somehow also sacrifice is, is supposed to be in there as well. This idea that love has this sacrificial component. Yep. At one level, given that the idea of sacrifice is going to be so important to Scruton's Wagner, At one level, you can see him trying to do for Eros what other people have done for agape, you know, agape being a sacrificial form of love, but doing this from within a framework which is atheistic, because for Wagner, God cannot exist. And the only hope if we're to be redeemed is to make sense of the idea that we could be redeemed in the absence of God where that means, where that involves claiming that we could somehow redeem ourselves. And here we're going back to the kind of framework according to which we've got on the one hand, human love, on the other hand, the love of God, and a really problematic distinction between the two again. What exactly does Wagner think that Tristan or Isolde need to be redeemed from? So... One of the interesting things about Tristan and Isolde is that their love is forbidden. So they're in a context where they cannot get together. 
I mean, maybe we should tell our listeners just like the plot, the basic plot (laughs) for those who have not seen, you know, this three hour opera. So this is a tale of forbidden love and Wagner's taking his version of the tale from the version that we have from Gottfried von Strasbourg's 13th century version of the tale, medieval version of the tale. And he basically brings it down to the following basic elements. So in Act One, we have Isolde in a boat who is being transported to King Mark by Tristan, who is taking her um, to be his wife. So this has been Tristan's task. Um, Mark is Tristan's uncle, and Tristan is doing this out of duty to him, and he's going to take Isolde to be Mark's wife. Now, Isolde is in the boat, and she's very angry that she's been used in this way, um, treated as a means, to put it in Scruton's more Kantian terminology. She's been treated as a mere means or an object. And we get a sense from this first act. One, they've met before, Tristan and Isolde have met before, and there may well be a kind of erotic love between them, which has yet to be acknowledged. Okay. So they're going in the boat towards Mark, and Mark's going to marry Isolde. Isolde's very angry about this, And she wants Tristan to recognize that he's doing something terrible to her, you know, treating her as as a mere object. And we're getting the sense, perhaps, that she wants him to acknowledge that um, she desires him. And she wants him to give some kind of acknowledgement that he feels something um, similar. But this is all understated at this point in the opera. Um, So by the end of the act, um, she wants them to drink um, as a kind of atonement and seal. She she wants to forgive Tristan for what he's done. She wants him to recognise that he's done something wrong. But she offers him a drink of atonement and her aim is to poison him and to kill him. And she's going to kill herself too. So already there is a connection between love and death. We're not absolutely clear about how that connection is to be understood, but she wants them to both drink um, this potion. Yeah, she has she has some sort of chest of potions mm-hmm. with her. And she has a maid with her right. who um, swaps the potions at last moment and gives um, them both the love potion, which was designed originally for Mark and Isolde to drink so that they would fall in love when right. she gets off the boat and goes to marry him. Right. So at the end of Act One, what we end up with is Tristan and Isolde both drinking, but drinking a love potion and falling in love rather than dropping dead. Right. But they're drinking with the intention of dying. Yes. And absolutely. it doesn't work out that way. Yeah. Right. Yep. 
So in Act 2, we get the declaration of love. Um, Tristan and Isolde um, are together. It's not absolutely clear um, what happens, but there's a lot of um, language about um, coming together and becoming one and a lot of the kind of religious language that you would get in um, some of the mystics that we mentioned previously and the mystics that somebody like Schopenhauer would have been. Um, yeah. Aren't we kind of meant to think that they have sex? I mean, you're right. It's not explicit, but like it is explicit in the medieval version, is it not? Yeah. Um, so you've got this idea on some interpretations of what's going on that they don't really want to get together and it's really important to their passion that there are obstacles in the way preventing them from getting together but um, like you I think that at one level it seems just obvious that they are having sex yeah. <laughs> that's to be understood <laughs> so yeah they declare their love but there are obstacles standing in the way and they're not going to be allowed to get together um, in any permanent sense or like they can't go away and get married because Isolde belongs to Mark. Right. Um, so again, it's beginning to look as if the only way ahead for them, given that they are desperately in love with each other, is to die together. So at the end of Act Two, Tristan allows himself to be wounded um, by um, one of the characters, Mello, and he's in a position where he's yeah seriously wounded and this is where act 2 closes and at the beginning of act 3 we're once again by the sea this time at the shore of Tristan's home in Brittany where he's been returned and he's without Isolde and he's waiting to see if she comes back to him if she can come and save him and he's looking out at sea to find the ship, which will show that um, he's going to be redeemed by her. And she finally arrives and um, Tristan's about to die. She has this final song, right? She has this final Liebes Toad where she appears to be transfigured. And I mean, again, the atmosphere is very mystical and it's almost as if Wagner wants to compare us to Christ in, in some way. Tristan dies. She dies or she is transfigured and they become one, we're led to suppose. But again, it's really unclear how this is to be interpreted, whether it's to be interpreted in a mystical sort of way, they're coming together, or whether it's to be interpreted in a way that Scruton's Wagner prefers, which we haven't really talked about too much yet. Yeah, well, let's talk about Scruton's Wagner. So Scruton's Wagner um, is trying to find a way in which the lovers can be redeemed, and more generally, all of us, um, in a world without God. That seems to be really important to what Scruton's wanting to do in this book. And in response to the question of whether this is his philosophy of love and philosophy of redemption. He's always been quite adamant that it's not, and this is him talking on behalf of Wagner. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's but, right. That's why we'll call it Scrutner and Wagner, 
right? Yeah. So we all know what we're talking about. But there are huge elements of Scruton in this position too, and huge elements of the idea that somehow we're coming to see that love can have a transcendent dimension. Anyway, the official picture, without this ambivalence that complicates the picture, I think the official picture is um, we're trying to make sense of the idea that two lovers two erotic lovers could be redeemed in a world without God. Okay. Now, at one level, the problem here is we've got two lovers, their love is forbidden. The only way ahead for them is death, given that they cannot be together, given that they cannot get together. Okay. Now, I think that if we take seriously that element of the story that their love is forbidden and given the time in question, they cannot run away together and get married. They cannot get together. You might be quite sympathetic to the idea that their only hope, given that they are truly committed to each other, is to die together. So that's one thought. But it's it's almost as if Scruton, it's almost as if Wagner or Scruton's Wagner thinks that what goes for forbidden love goes for erotic love more generally. Right. And that in erotic love more generally, the only way of finding redemption is in death. And that is a really difficult thought to accept. Right. And it's it's somehow, I think, it's deeply tied in to the sacred character of it. So I'm just looking Mm -hmm. in the book. This is page 187, Mm -hmm. a very illuminating passage. He says, although Tristan's love for Isolde is a forbidden love, the music shows us that it is not the world's forbidding, but his Mm -hmm. own inner permitting that is directing him towards death. Mm Tristan's love is intrinsically death-directed, as is Isolde's, and any other fate would compromise the purity of their desire. Marriage, household budgets, children, which belong to the world of day and have their justification in society, would pollute this heroic love, drag it down into the world of calculation, and negate its iconic value as the symbol of what we all in love's first passion, can aspire to. Hence, although Tristan's death might seem from a certain perspective like an accident or a mistake, it is, from the point of view of the emotions that are driving Act 3 to its conclusion, a necessity. So the purity of this heroic love is that it's never going to get dragged down into the domesticity and everydayness of marriage and ordinary life. I mean, it's interesting. It's almost as if he's wanting to say that if you could somehow preserve in isolation the first stage of love, then you would have found God. It's hard to know where you go with that, to be honest. But yes, I mean, I think this this notion of purity that he's working with, Mm. I think must be uh, this purity, which is heroic, right, and intrinsically death-oriented, this somehow is supposed to get at the sacred character. Yeah. And it's really interesting because if you look at, for example, um, Scruton's sexual desire that he wrote in 1986, I mean, he's adamant there that it's a real mistake to focus exclusively upon the first stage of love, passion love, 
and think that by so doing, you're going to arrive at important and good philosophical conclusions about the nature of love. You know, he says that quite explicitly. And, you know, that's fine. He'll say, look, well, we're not talking about my position here. We're talking about Wagner's. But there is a question of what what the justification would be for insisting upon this, insisting upon this point that the only way of getting a pure form of love is by requiring that requiring that it doesn't go beyond the first stage. Right. Yeah. Now, now, I mean, it's it's fulfillment is in death. It's intrinsically death. So not accidentally. It's not by some accident of misfortune that it's death devoted it's it's intrinsically um aimed at death and i mean it's a little wild but do do you think it's less wild if you allow that we're talking here about forbidden love and we're allowing also that there could be a mystical dimension here and if it's a forbidden love it's not it's going nowhere anyway and i think i'm sympathetic to the idea that the lovers have no alternative unless they want to compromise on their love. But it just seems to me that Scruton is suggesting something a little bit more radical than that, because he says, although Tristan's love for Isolde is, it's a forbidden love, mm-hmm. right? The music shows us that it is not the world's forbidding. That's an external contingent thing, but his own inner permitting that is directing him towards death. So it's like, it's something internal to him. It's not some external fact about the world that, like, fine, she's betrothed to this other guy. Um, you know, that stinks. But then it's really important to him, isn't it, that love is something that happens to you. But the really important thing is how you choose to respond to this thing that's happened to you. And it's really important here that Tristan and Isolde are free in one important sense. They're free to make the relevant and correct choices here. So I can see that the element of choice is really important to the picture if we're not to reduce them to objects again. So that's an important idea, isn't it? It's not that he's been forced into this. It has to be something that he himself goes along with. Um, right. I agree but- that it that it has to be free. And in fact, it's it sort of strikes me just as someone who you know, was reading this and then went and and watched the Wagner. I think we're supposed to get the sense that now they're truly free, but it seems like Scruton is suggesting that what they're free from is the profane, everyday, ordinary, humdrum kind of married love where you have all these responsibilities and obligations and, you know, they're they're free from all of that. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. And And I guess this is why people like Denis de Rougemont in his Love in the Western World um, interpret Tristan, um, Wagner's Tristan, as a tale of narcissism and egoism. You know, de Rougemont wants to say they don't love each other. They love the idea of being in love and they're getting off on this heady passion, which in Scruton's book, Sexual Desire, was the reason for moving beyond this first stage of love, just because there is this narcissistic temptation to stay at this stage and forget about all of the other things. So de Rougemont reverses all of this and says, you know, eros is a really bad thing. Um, We need to go beyond it if we're to be redeemed. And we have to move in the direction of agape, which he associates with 
things like society, marriage, um, all of the things that are seemingly being denied here. And I think, you know, I think then we end up we end up with another version of the problematic dualism of eros and agape. And my question then would be, well, can't we go beyond this and find some middle position or compromise which would allow us to um, move beyond Tristan Isolde's predicament? Right. I mean, notwithstanding the particular predicament that they happen to be in, given given the circumstances of their love. But right. this is supposed to be something that has more general application, isn't it? So it's clear that for Scruton's Wagner, this is not narcissism, right? Because if it because of this element of sacrifice, he thinks that even Tristan and Isolde's love is a preparation for sacrifice. So this actually is the very end. This is like the last two paragraphs of the book um, where he really stresses the connection between love and sacrifice. This is page 193. So he says, through love, we are capable of sacrifice. Love leads us to sacrifice precisely through that aspect of it, which nourishes our sense of the sacred. The individualizing intentionality that is disclosed in the look of love, which we desecrate through all of our compromises and substitutes. This sacrifice offers a kind of proof that we can transcend our mortal condition, that even in this passion that robs us of our freedom, we are supremely free, that even in this predicament, especially in this predicament, we can become something higher than victims of our fate. And he goes on to talk about how through their sacrifice, the sacrifice of Tristan and Isolde at the end of the opera, they restore belief in our human potential and renew in us the will to live. Hence, the redemption of the lovers in death is also a renewal of the community in life. And that is the religious meaning of Tristan and Isolde. So he's clearly... I mean, I don't know if he has Derujman explicitly in mind, but he's clearly trying to make this sacrificial and redemptive and in a way that draws the community in. So he doesn't want it to just be a tale about these two lovers. And it's also, you know, they he, he's thinking that their love is something that draws us in as a community. I'm not sure I'm convinced by that, but I just wanted to invite you to say more about it. I mean, I think this idea about sacrifice and death, um, that can be interpreted in various ways. And in one of Derugemont's themes is that the lovers are obsessed with death. And I think that when he talks about being obsessed with death, he's talking about death as a kind of hell and a way of being severed from God. And he thinks that their narcissism is going to guarantee that they can never make connection with God. So that that obsession with death is just moving them away from God. So I think that one could be obsessed with death and self-sacrifice in that problematic narcissistic way, yeah? Mm. But Scruton here is clearly wanting to avoid that kind of interpretation. And he basically, he seems, well, the language suggests that he thinks that you can do this way what Derugemont thinks you can do only by giving up on Eros and moving the direction of agape and community and all of the things that are associated with life. So 
Yeah, I mean, he really seems to want to push it in that direction. And if he can make that work, then the concern about the dualism is lessened somewhat. Death accepted for love's sake. I mean, one important idea here is that we come to see that there is something truly valuable and the lovers have seen the value of love and it's so valuable that they're prepared to die for it and even though they can't get together etc it doesn't matter because they've experienced this moment or I don't know a few days or weeks or whatever it is the first bit of passion love um they've experienced something truly valuable in that sense and we ourselves can see that the love that I don't know I'm just trying to think on my feet and trying to make sense of what it could be to reason in the, this way. Uh, but, 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 but. Well, I mean, maybe I can quote you to help you. <laughs> so I also, in just preparing for this conversation, was looking at an article that you wrote called oh. Scruton's Wagner on God, Salvation oh. and Eros. Um, and so you're trying to tackle what exactly Wagner's interest is in this opera and he's trying to articulate a vision of redemption without God. And Wagner seems to have this insight that it belongs to the human to yearn for redemption, to want to have things in life that are sacred, that are holy and set apart and that are worth dying for. But so what you write in your paper about this kind of redemption is that, um, so you say three things about it. One, that it involves a transcendence of the world of appetite into the realm of values. Two, that it brings about a changed perception of the world and a recognition that freedom really does exist in the world and we possess it. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, that in redemption, one regains the sacred in a world where sacrilege is the prevailing danger. If we approach the opera with that lens, then I guess what we say about Tristan and Isolde is that their erotic passion for one another does help them see, I guess, what is what is most valuable, that it does bring about this changed perception of the world and that somehow it allows them to recover a sense of what is sacred. In this case, I'm assuming it's their own love. So the Christian account of redemption, or, or maybe we'll just say the classically theist account of redemption is a redemption from death. But this is a redemption in death, which somehow is supposed to draw in the community. I also may be inclined to say it's not really clear that this is a redemption. I mean, I guess one, one question is, how do you think it can avoid narcissism, given that the only, we've just got these two figures here. And I'm thinking about somebody like Levinas, who would say there's a dual egoism here, and we need to go beyond these two lovers if we're to move in the direction of the community in the way that Scruton wants to. But you think we can avoid narcissism here uh, on what ground? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I don't think this view works at the end of the day. I'll just put all my cards on the table. Um, that's fine because this, there is a question about whether we're attacking Scruton's conception of love. And I don't think we are because I think his picture is more complex. We're calling into question a framework in which desire well, in which desire is, well, I guess, you know, put it in the terms of the project that I began with today, where understanding redemption from within a framework in which desire is severed from God, for example. Now, there's a further question of whether that means that desire is severed from the good. Maybe it is. And I I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, personally, um, the soteriological element to this, I have a very hard time understanding. So this idea that there's some kind of salvation or or something here in death, um, I'm not sure that I'm at all convinced by that because insofar as we are thinking of redemption or, or a need for salvation, it seems to me like basic to this whole framework is that there's something that utterly transcends you that is redeeming you or saving you from something which is bad, which is holding you back from your complete fulfillment. Right? And we know the response that um, Wagner gives to this, which is... Um, the beloved, the human beloved, is the key here. So God is out of the picture and redemption, which for Scruton's Wagner is definition, the regaining of the sacred in a world where sacrilege is the um, prevalent danger or however he puts it, a regaining of the sacred. The regaining of the sacred comes from the fact that the lover um, is in love with this beloved, untouchable, precious, sacred person. Right. And she I, loves him back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm more inclined. I mean, I, frankly, my reaction to all of this was not so much that it was narcissism, but that it was mm. idolatrous. Right. I mean, it's making an idol mm. out of another human being. And I mean, my, my own view is just that if you expect another human to be what totally fulfills you, um, one, you're wrong. Mm. <laughs> it's never going to happen. And maybe death saves you from the inevitable realization mm. that it's never going to happen. But two, it's a, it's a very dangerous illusion, right? I guess, it's, I guess it's an I incredibly think... dangerous illusion to think that another human being mm. is going to be what completely mm. fulfills you as the kind of thing that you are. I, I guess I think there's a fine line between idolatry and true religion. And, you know, if you think about, if you think, think about the kind of position that I I take quite seriously where um, relating to God involves standing in loving relations to others. Um, so the human other has a really important role to play in your relation to God, but it's not that the God, that the human other is a substitute for God. No. Right, exactly. So, but, the, but the human relation, the, the human to human relation is key to an understanding of how we relate to God. I think that's really important. And I then agree. The, and then the question is, 
how to think about that human to human or either relation in such a way that you avoid idolatry and you're wanting to say that in Tristan or at least in this version that we're discussing we get a good example of how not to think about the human 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 god relation yeah Um, I mean I guess I'm thinking I mean yes put in a most general way that that's definitely my position. I, I think there's some sort of deep mistake going on here, but it's an interesting mistake mm. from my perspective. But look, I mean, because I do think that love, sacrifice, redemption, I think these are all intertwined. And I think they do point to the kind of sacred character, even of erotic passion, right? Um, which aims at a certain kind of union with another person. I think that there is a sacred dimension to that i think there it, he says the goal i glimpse and desire is not of this world and involves a kind of union the transcendent again and I, and i and i and i think that's right too mm, i think mm. that's a thought that you find in the symposium in the phaedrus yeah. i agree with all of that what i don't really get and insofar as i get i strong, strongly resist mm. um is this idea that what it's really driving at is is just death, right? Because that seems to me to not be transcendent, right? Um, that's in no sense the goal. You know, like some people, it's like when you're presenting Aristotle to undergrads and you want to talk about our natural end and like the first objection you get every time is, well, why isn't just death our natural end? Obviously we're all going to die. And it's like, right, but that's not the relevant sense of natural. Like Aristotle is looking for the end in which a life could be said to like, like, you know, it's the culminating end. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not just like the last thing that happens which is going to be death, but it's the culmination. It's supposed to be the end that is the culmination of all your potential as a human being, right? And death isn't that, right? I mean, you're not, unless your death truly is ordered. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about martyrdom because I'm writing about Malik's A Hidden Life. Um, Their death might be a culmination, but precisely insofar as it points to something outside itself. And I suppose then we've got to go back to the mystical undercurrents in, well, in Schopenhauer and Wagner and Tristan. Well, I mean, maybe we should bring it back to Schopenhauer. So because you've mentioned that Wagner is very you know, very influenced by Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer is this idea that happiness is this kind of transcending desire. Is that supposed to be um, the redemption at the end that they've transcended their passion? Well, the really interesting thing is that, um, so Schopenhauer treats erotic desire as part of the problem rather than the solution. So erotic desire is just part and parcel of will-driven existence. It gives rise to great suffering, and this is why we can never find happiness in love, if we're Schopenhauer, if we commit to his theory. So Wagner makes a crucial change with respect to this aspect of Schopenhauer's doctrine, because Wagner thinks that the key is to be found in erotic love. So whereas Schopenhauer would have us 
reject erotic love and move beyond it to a kind of asceticism which is non-erotic. I think Wagner's position is a lot more interesting if you think that erotic love does have religious significance, but it's almost as if Wagner's position is pointing us in the direction of an asceticism which comes from eros. Right. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I am going to disagree with uh, Scruton's Wagner as a sort of like somehow not the right view or, or somehow doesn't work out. Um, but look, you know, I mean, I've I've been married for 15 years and <laughs> have six kids and I sort of want to stand up for the ordinary humdrum, humdrum kind of love as, <laughs> as what's really sacrificial and great. I'm generally, like I said at the beginning, I'm very appreciative of and interested in the secular search for the sacred. And what really strikes me about Wagner is this um, appreciation of the sacred as something that is nourished by the readiness to die. Um, I think there is some incredibly profound, deep connection there between the sacred and the sacrificial that really does tell us something about the nature of love generally. But I just want to, I don't know, I, I, I want to leave things with you. I mean, like what at the end of the day, you've studied this and thought about this way more than me. I started thinking about this two months ago, <laughs> having <laughs> nary a thought about, <laughs> about Scruton's Wagner. Um, I mean, where, where does it leave you? So, well, for a start, I think, and I think you'd agree with me that erotic love has to be understood in dynamic rather than static terms. Yes. I think attempting to isolate that first stage is going to be pretty disastrous from the point of view of thinking about its true redemptive significance. And as for erotic desire, well, I'm very much committed to the idea that it has religious significance, although I acknowledge also that the question of what that really means is quite unclear once you start bringing people like Murdoch into the picture and the relation between goodness and God and all of those complicated issues that we talked about at the beginning. I think ultimately, I think that there is there is an attempt in some contemporary Nietzschean scholarship to try to construct a conception of redemption through desire in which desire is completely severed from an external source of value and from God. And I think that that approach cannot work, that Scruton's Wagner is operating from within those parameters. It leads to the idea that the image of the unrequited lover, which is one of Nietzsche's images, it leads to the idea that the image of the unrequited lover is somehow somehow the key to a solution to the problem of how we could find redemption without God. And I think that it's a deeply problematic position that cannot work. And I think one of the main reasons I'm so interested in Wagner and Scruton's Wagner and Scruton and Murdoch is that I think there's a deep ambivalence in all of these positions. And I think the ambivalence comes out in Wagner's music as well, which is at one level music of truly religious significance, but 
at another level can be viewed in quite a different way. Um, I think that ambivalence comes out and it really goes back to the question of how we're to view the relation between eros and agape and God and human and just how all of these concepts link together. And I think there's no quick solution to these problems. But I mean, this is one of the problems that motivates the work that I've been doing for this Quest for God project. And I think that the concept of desire is key here and getting clear about the relation between eros and agape and love more generally is key. Good. Okay. Last question. I think it's an easy question. So for our listeners who are interested in reading more Scruton, what is the next book you recommend to them? Well, I think that the 1986 book on sexual desire is pretty good. It's it's quite you maybe have to read it two or three times, but a lot of it's very clear. It's set out from within an atheistic framework. I mean, not explicitly atheistic, but God is, isn't mentioned, except insofar as Scruton will keep saying things like that erotic love gives us a glimpse of the transcendent in some sense. But in that book, this goes hand in hand with the idea that any notion of transcendence in, seems to involve a metaphysical illusion. And I think that's the ambivalence in his position. That's his commitment to a kind of Nietzschean form of atheism. And it's an ambivalence that stays with him. Um, yeah, stays with him, even in his religious work. And maybe that's because, above all, he he is and was a, a very honest thinker. And he was grappling with these very deep issues. And there are no easy solutions. And And I think you know, he's, his preparedness to keep grappling with these issues is what made him such a great philosopher and what a terrible loss it is to philosophy and philosophy of religion and all of the other things that he was so good at too. I agree. I agree. I love reading Scruton. I I usually disagree with him, but I I just, I thoroughly enjoy reading him because he... Yeah, I mean, he's he's just so good. He's such a pleasure and a joy to read. And he just gets me thinking. Um, mm. And what, what else do you want from a philosopher, really? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Fiona, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Great conversation. Thanks so much. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you can follow us on social media on Twitter at Pod or over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, then you definitely need to leave us a five-star review on iTunes and be sure to let your friends know to check us out. Our next episode will feature National Book Award winner Phil Clay, author of the short story collection Redeployment. Phil and I will be discussing Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim. You definitely will not want to miss it.